0: Hi, I'm Anjali. I'm a producer here on It's Been a Minute.
1: Hi, I'm Alex. I'm an editor on the show.
0: So Alex... Let's start by actually
1: telling listeners what it takes to make this show. Uh, The process actually begins with pitching. It just begins with throwing ideas out there. And
0: then we actually have to take those ideas and book the people we want on the show. We're taping these interviews with people in studio, sometimes going out to them in the field.
1: And then our producers put their headphones on and they start cutting this massive thing down.
0: And then editors like Alex on our show are actually listening back to it and making sure what we're cutting is working.
1: And then we ship it off to you, the listeners. And before you know it, it's in your ears, in your podcast feeds, and on your radio.
0: We're a bi-coastal team, so we're always sending each other messages and emails, picking up the phone, talking non-stop to get this done.
1: So many emails. And slacks. And slacks. <laughs> the best part of the show is that you get to be a part of it, too. Every week, you call in and you tell us about the best thing that happened to you that week. And we actually sit down and we listen to all of those.
0: So whether you're on the East Coast or the best coast,
2: <clears throat>
0: I mean the West Coast, or somewhere in between, show your support for this show at donate.npr.org Sam. After all, we're building a community thanks to you. All right, let's get to the show.
3: Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute... Happy holidays. Today we're taking a break from the news and our usual weekly wrap to bring you a fun encore episode featuring two awesome writers we had on the show earlier this year, Angie Thomas and Candice Cardi-Williams. Angie is the author of a book called The Hate You Give. It is a plot line ripped from the headlines all about a girl who loses her friend who was shot and killed while unarmed by a police officer. The Hate You Give debuted at number one on the New York Times Young Adult Bestseller list, It won a bunch of awards. You may have even saw the feature film uh, based on that book. In this episode, you'll hear me talk to Angie a bit about that, but more about her second book, which is called On the Come Up. That one also was a bestseller right out the gate. And then later, you'll hear my conversation with Candice Cardi williams She wrote Queenie, one of the biggest fiction debuts of this year. Queenie has been called the Black Bridget Jones Diary, which might sound offensive, but Candice does not mind that as long as you read the book. Both of these authors this episode get really real with me about issues of race, interracial dating, family drama, the publishing industry, etc. It's good meaty stuff. Let's get into it. First up is Angie. Fun fact, Angie Thomas actually joined me from Jackson, Mississippi with her mom. Her mom came in studio with her, the cutest thing. Uh, we all talked earlier this year about her latest book on the come up. It's about a young woman trying to make it as a rapper. So I began asking Angie about the rap scenes she writes for her characters. You write these epic rap battle scenes in the book, and I haven't, like, been transported into the feel of a rap battle that expertly since, like, 8 Mile. (laughs) (laughs) It was really good. And I I kept thinking the whole time. I was like, I bet you Angie Thomas has been in her own rap battle before. You must have been, right? (laughs) That's all I kept thinking.
4: Well, okay, here's the thing. Um, First, I'm so happy you brought up the whole 8 Mile thing because that was like an influence on me when I was writing the book. In fact, I named um, the gym where they go to battle. I named it Jimmy's because that was the name of Eminem's character in Uh, 8 Mile. So that was like my way of paying homage to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a good
3: movie. That movie, like I have mixed feelings about M&M, mm-hmm. but that movie still slaps.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that movie. That movie is a classic. Yeah. Uh, but I I personally didn't battle battle when I was a teen I was a rapper when I was a teenager but I wasn't really good at it Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can admit that now Um, when I would do like rap battles I wouldn't even really call them battles because I would go and and it was supposed to be freestyles but I would be doing stuff that I already wrote you know Mm. or sometimes which is a no-no right Right, that's a no no. Pre written is a no no. So I hoped that with writing these scenes and with showing people the ins and outs of it and, and the internal part of it of coming up with freestyles on the spot, that maybe just maybe more people would respect it as an art form. You know, but I can't do it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of rap, your new book, which I'm devouring, on the come up. Um, how much of a description of this book can you tell your listeners, our listeners? Without, like, spoilers.
4: Yeah, sure. On the come up, um, I always have to say this at the beginning. It's not a sequel or a spinoff to The Hate You Give. Okay. Um, I get a lot of questions about, am I doing a sequel? I have no plans for a sequel right now okay. because I think Star needs a break from me. <laughs> um, but it is set in the same neighborhood as The Hate You Give. And it is about a 16-year-old girl named Brianna who wants to be a rapper. And her life is turned upside down when, one, her mom unexpectedly loses her job, and two, a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons, and she finds herself in the center of a controversy that's too big for her to control. But because of the fact that she's a young black person in America, she's not given national interviews to make herself seem innocent. She's seen as a villain in this narrative. But as her family situation gets worse, she finds herself desperate to make it even if it means becoming the very thing people have made her out to be.
3: So this book is set in the same neighborhood as your first book, The Hate You Give, uh, Garden Heights. Uh, Describe that neighborhood for us, and then tell me why you chose the same neighborhood, but a different character and a different plot for this new book.
4: Garden Heights is loosely based on the neighborhood where I grew up, here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Garden Heights is that neighborhood that all of us know about that one neighborhood in every major city um, where you know you don't go there. You know, every every city has at hmm. least one neighborhood where you don't go there unless you have to go there. Mm-hmm. I decided to return there for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, for me, it feels so much like home because, like I was saying, it's based on my own neighborhood. But hmm. after the events of The Hate You Give— I thought it was important to return to this neighborhood. You know, we Hmm. saw what happened at the end of The Hate You Give with the community and Mm -hmm. the uprising in response to Khalil's murder. But when we see these things happen in real life, nobody really takes the time to find out, well, what's the neighborhood like now? Hmm. You know, what's Ferguson like now? And it felt very... Fitting to go back there, too, and to start Brie's story in the aftermath of Khalil. Um, I often compare Brie to hip-hop itself, you know, Mm. and hip-hop started, you know, in the Bronx— after the Bronx burnings when there was so much chaos in that hmm. in that borough. And so now we're in Garden Heights after so much chaos in this neighborhood and this young lady has managed to find her voice through an art form just like those kids in the Bronx did back in the 70s. So it just felt fitting to return there and find someone who is figuring out how to use their voice to make themselves heard.
3: Yeah. What I love about On the Come Up and what I love about Bree and her story, like it's as much about her story and how she sees the world as it is about the way the rest of the world sees Brie. Uh, this young, talented person of color, young woman who is obviously gifted, but like very misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And you also write about how like her entire neighborhood is misunderstood, particularly in the aftermath of some rioting that takes place in Garden Heights. There's this line you have that just stopped me in my tracks when you were describing how this kind of community is treated after a police-involved shooting. You said it was like having a stranger come in your house, steal one of your kids, and blame you for it because your family was dysfunctional while the whole world judges you for being upset.
4: Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Do you feel yeah. that way about, I don't know, the news and things in the news tied to some of the stuff that you tackle you know, in this book and the previous one.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think for so many of us, the frustrating part is that when these incidents happen, um, the blame immediately goes to the communities or to the families or even the victims themselves. You know, I think Trayvon Martin is blamed for his own death by more people than George Zimmerman is blamed for it. And, and you wonder why is this? Why is it that particularly black people are always found at fault when we're really the victims in so many of these instances. So, yeah, that line, that that, that comes from me and myself. But I also hope that it makes people think about why is it that black people are never given the benefit of the doubt? Why is yeah. it that we're always blamed even when we're victims? What does that say about this country and about us as a society?
3: And the thing I wonder with that, it's like, all right, we're what? five or six years into the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are Mm -hmm. some days when I question if that movement has changed any of that sentiment that you just spoke of. Like, Mm -hmm. is the way some people want to see black suffering, has it been changed at all by all the protests, by all the marches, by all the movement? I don't know some days. Mm -hmm. You know? It's It's hard for me to say. (laughs) Really?
4: Because yeah, it it's is. like, it's I want to
3: be encouraged, but I don't I don't know. Do you do you think it's getting better?
4: You know, I think what's happening right now is that um, we're in such a time of turmoil that so many of these stories are being lost in the headlines? When you have, you know, political leaders who are serving fast food to football players, that becomes the headline, not the young black mm. unarmed black person who was killed by a cop. That's no mm. longer the headlines now. People are we're people are distracted um, by shenanigans, you know. So, yeah. um, but then on the same at the same time, I'm seeing some changes, you know. I can say, personally, I've seen changes. Um, I've had a chance to tour the world because of The Hate You Give, and I've talked to people around the world um, about the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. And the fact that I had, you know, like a 90-year-old white woman who came to me in tears at a signing, and she told me she loves the book and she gets it now, that gives me hope. Mm. But on a large scale, it feels at times like, as a society, we haven't made much, um, mm. we haven't made many changes.
3: hmm Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about how you want to position your work and your books in that push for change. I had the most interesting conversation with a white friend of mine. I knew that I was going to talk to him, was excited about it. And he said his big question as a white adult reading this book, he was like, is Angie writing these books primarily for young black kids to better see themselves? Or for young white kids to better see a world they don't know, or is it somewhere in the middle? I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not as simple as like, is this for black kids or for white kids? Question, but like, I wonder mm-hmm. how you navigate that because based on who you are as a kid reading this, it is a different experience, right?
4: Absolutely, you know, and um, I often say that my priority. Um, my priority is those black kids. They don't get Mm. enough books about themselves. Mm. You know, they don't, they aren't given enough, enough mirrors to see themselves. Um, Dr. Rudine Sims-Bishops, who's a wonderful academic um, in children's literature, she says that books are either mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. And I think it's important for my books to be all three. Um, Mm. So I I always think of those kids, especially in my old neighborhood, who say, I hate reading. And why do they say that? Because they rarely see themselves in books. So I'm always going to think about them first and if it creates a mirror a window wonderful that's that's great but always always the priority Um, my priority is those black kids
3: when do you know as a writer of young adult content when kids are ready for the serious issues you you raise in your books
4: you know it's hard for me to say because i think it depends on the kid Mm. i've had eight-year-olds write to me directly and say that they love the hate you give. And I'm like, does your mama know you read that? You know? know? But he wrote me this letter, and I got to respond to him. But he wrote me this letter, and he said, I love your book, and keep doing what you're doing. You're making a difference. And the world is going to be a better place because you're in it. And it made me cry. But the Mm. fact is, he's eight, And what also, what really got me about it, though, was the fact that he mentioned that his mom got him the book. And that made me say, huh, your mom thought that at eight years old, you needed to read this book. That Mm. means that you are aware of something that an eight-year-old should not have to be aware of. Mm. And I'm glad that my book was there for him, but I'm sad that he had to be at that point. Mm. You know, I, I had a lot of white parents say, I'm not sure. I had a white parent tell me, I'm not sure my... 13-year-old is ready to read The Hate U Give. And Mm. I said, well, just think of this. There are black parents of eight-year-olds who have to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. If you only have to worry about your child reading about it, consider yourself blessed. Come on, That's privilege.
3: Mm. One of the things that I love about your career is that on top of just making good books, you are trying to make a good industry for books. And you have spoken out a lot about the lack of diversity in publishing, particularly the lack of diversity in publishing of children's books. You've even gone so mm-hmm. far as to call out your own publisher, HarperCollins, and say when you were a kid, they weren't making books for you. Um, years into this work now, do you think that's getting better?
4: I do. Um, I do. Um, we're seeing more and more books um, featuring kids of color and just marginalized kids, period, at the forefront. You know, There was one time just a few months ago where— Half of the books on the New York Times bestseller list starred kids of color, and that huh. was amazing. You know, that was incredible to see, yeah. and and it's showing them that yeah, these books can sell. These books can sell well too. Um, but on the flip side, my fear is that, and I and I take I, I part part of me feels guilty about this, but on the flip side, my fear is that they're assuming that only issue books, so called issue books, mm. can be acquired about kids of color. You know. The Hate You Give and on the Come Up, people are calling them important books, and that's great. But let's also have Can We Get a Twilight featuring Black Kids? Come on. You know, can can we can we get romantic comedies featuring black kids, rom-coms? Can we can we just have stories with them just being and just doing? Can we get even crappy books about black kids? Every book doesn't have to, you know, there are plenty of crappy books out there. Every book does not have to be stellar because it's about a kid of color or by a person of color. Yeah. So, I'm seeing changes and I want to see more changes, but I really want to see more changes within publishing itself, within the offices themselves. And I'm thankful because my publisher is amazing. My editor, she's amazing. Balls and Bray, they are one of the most diverse imprints out there. Hmm. And I'm so proud of them and the work they're doing. Um, Of the three of the big YA movies that came out last year, they um, published most of them. Really? and 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 they were all about characters that you wouldn't see necessarily at the forefront but they made us all they put us all at the forefront so this was hate to give and
3: um what else as far as movies
4: um love simon Oh, yeah. Which was based on Simon versus the Homo sapiens agenda. Um, Dumplin, which was based on the book Dumplin, which was about a a fat girl. And then um, there was The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was about um, LGBTQIA kids. So they did Mm -hmm. all of those books and they all became amazing movies. Um, And so they're showing, yeah. (laughs) So they're showing, publishing that diverse books should be given just as much attention as any other books but also they're showing that there can be a wide a wide range of diverse books so yeah. shout out to my publisher they're doing shout it right out. They,
3: love it. <laughs> they want to love this interview <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to it's been a minute from NPR it is time for a break you're hearing my encore chat with the author Angie Thomas after the break she tells me how she's dealing with her newfound fame
5: BRB. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Green from Amex. A little pep talk goes a long way. Whether it's over a big old plate of comfort food or a comfortable drive out of town with your besties, Green from Amex can help cheer you on with three times points on restaurants and travel, including car rentals. It's built around your lifestyle, so you can keep doing you with an extra boost of confidence. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Green from Terms apply. Support also comes from The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment. Shop luxury clothing, accessories, and fine art at unreal prices. From your favorite designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Cartier, and hundreds more. And The Real RealReal's team of authenticators from around the globe ensure every item is authenticated daily. Shop in-store, on the app, or at therealreal.com and receive 20% off select items with promo code REAL. Hey, Mindy here from NPR's Wow in the World. joining Guy Raz and me for our special 100th episode, a musical. Science, laughs, melodies.
0: Melodies.
5: Melodies. Melodies.
2: Melodies.
5: melodies. <laughs> la, 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 la. It's Wow in the World from Tinkercast and NPR. Listen now and share with your kids.
3: We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we're giving you a very special episode with two great writers we've had on this show in 2019. Angie Thomas and Candice Cardi-Williams. Right now, more of my chat with Angie Thomas. She is the mind behind the books The Hate You Give and On the Come Up. Angie told me about the non-traditional path she took to get her first book published. Another thing I love about your story is how it shows that, like, in terms of, like, diversifying publishing, there also has to be a reconception of what the pipeline even looks like. I think that there is a very traditional path one goes about to get a book published, and your story proved that you don't have to have that path. You found your agent on Twitter?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell folks yeah. that story.
3: It's amazing.
4: Yeah. Um, I was um, in the middle of finishing up my edits on The Hate You Give, and I was considering sending it out to literary agents. But Like a few weeks earlier, a study had come out saying that that year alone, there were more books featuring animals and trucks as the main characters than black kids. Good God. And for me, I know. And for me, I was like, wait, what? First of all, what? And then knowing that, I, knowing that I have this book about this black girl, and not just a book about a black girl, but a book about that's inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. I immediately thought, there is no way I have a shot. So I was actually at my job. Um, I worked at a church at the time and I was on my lunch break and I signed on Twitter and I saw that a literary agency was holding a question and answer session. Basically, um, aspiring writers could just ask publishing related questions and get a response. You know, there are so many things so many of us want to know, but we're so often afraid to ask. And here they were giving us a chance to ask, even if we sounded stupid. So um, I just asked the question using the hashtag. I was like, "Um, are books that deal with sensitive issues a no-no? And Hmm. I wasn't even sure how to word it, but I was like, let's just put it like that. (laughs) And so this agent, Brooks Sherman, he responded and he was like, what kind of issues? And Hmm. I said, the the Black Lives Matter movement, I have a young adult book dealing with that. And he said, I don't think that any topic is off topic in young adult books. It's all about how you approach it. Hmm. And I said, well, I hope I did it right. (laughs) And he said, well, I'd actually like to read it. So The rest is history. (laughs) Yeah. I emailed it to him. And he read it, loved it, and signed me. And maybe three months after signing me, we went on submission to publishers, and 13 U.S. publishers fought for the rights to this book. Wow. So Twitter is good for something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm very thankful to Jack for that if nothing else
3: I <laughs> <laughs> talk about Jack <laughs> Yeah, yeah oh my goodness I also love like the entire backstory of the hate you give like mm-hmm. and I don't want to tell your story I want you to tell it but like you started writing this book like in college at what is it Bellhaven University
4: yeah Bellhaven University it's a liberal arts school here in Jackson Mississippi Um I was In the creative writing program, I was actually the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program. And that's really just because the program was young. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was part of the third or fourth graduating class, but still, I was the first black student. But then that also meant I was the only black student a lot of times. Uh So, like, when stuff like slavery got discussed, everybody looked at me as (laughs) if I was there. (laughs) You know?
3: (laughs) You're like, I'm not Harriet.
4: (laughs) Yeah. But I often found myself being two different people in two very different worlds. I still lived in my old neighborhood. And although it was like 10 minutes away from Bellhaven, it was an entirely different world. Um, If you've read the book The Help or watched the movie, like the neighborhood where the maids worked, that's Mm -hmm. where my school is. Mm. So it was totally different from my hood, you know? Yeah. Um, And I found myself just... Changing who I was, where I was often. But um, while I was in school, a young man named Oscar Grant lost his life in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know him personally. But I took his death very personally. Um, Oscar, the last day of his life is the subject of the movie Fruitvale Station, Yeah. Um, for those who don't know. So I wrote I wrote a short story about a boy named Khalil who was a lot like Oscar and a mm. girl named Star who lived in those two different worlds like I did. So that's mm. essentially how The Hate You Give was born. It was my senior project for college.
3: Mm. So you're still in Jackson?
4: For now, yeah. And
3: you grew up there? Yes. It must have given you such a rich sense of history to come from there and to be Mm -hmm. I mean like it's a place full of history I was reading what you grew up like three minutes away from Medgar Evers home your mother heard the shot that killed him like like you're walking amidst history in Jackson Mississippi I'm sure it must affect the way you write and how you write
4: oh yeah for sure you know Um, Mississippi is known for two things, um, racism and writing. And I happen to be a writer who writes about racism. (laughs) 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 It was kind of inevitable. But, yeah, yeah, you know, I I think it was William Faulkner who once said, if you can understand Mississippi, you can understand America. Mm. Because what happens here it happens all over the country you know and the history we have here is america's history and and for me i have to say you know i have to admit like i'm struggling with it now do i stay or do i leave because as a mississippian um the relationship with this state often feels like a relationship with an emotionally abusive parent you still love them but at times you're like i don't need this this is toxic
3: but you're staying for a while you could easily Um, move anywhere you wanted to at this point right yeah <laughs> i'm
4: i'm I'm definitely considering at least just living here part time within the next year or so really? um, and just making it a part time residence now, I'm still trying to decide it because okay. the struggle for me is I like staying because if nothing else, I give the kids here an example and show mm. them what's possible. Mm. You know, Nelson Mandela Mandela always said that he made sure he shook people's hands because he wanted them to feel what's possible. So I want kids in Mississippi yeah. to see me, to know yeah. what's possible. I grew up knowing that Oprah was from here, but Come it on. didn't click that Oprah was from here because I didn't see Oprah. She is more than welcome to fix that by coming to my <laughs> house or something. But uh, <laughs> I love you, Oprah. There was no shade <laughs> at you. I, you know, but I knew she was from here. But I wasn't used to seeing people every day or even just around town Mm. and knowing that they were doing things like this and Mm. they were still here, that it was possible. So that's Mm. why it's a struggle for me to decide whether to stay or to leave.
3: Yeah. A thing I read about you um, was that since your career took off, you moved um, into a gated neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, particularly writing about the communities that you write about in your books Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were leaving some of that reality when you moved on up?
4: Oh, yeah. I had a struggle like Maverick struggled in The Hate You Give. You know, like, mm-hmm. if does leaving change who I am? And I had to just realize that it doesn't. You know, the weird thing about specifically the Metro Jackson area is that mm-hmm. a lot of the nice neighborhoods and safe neighborhoods are gated. And, hmm. and it always makes me think of this line that CeeLo Green had. And one of the uh, Goody Mob songs, he says, "But every now and then, I wonder if the gate was put up to keep crime out or keep mm. I in." Mm. I think about that a lot yeah. when I see
5: <laughs> yeah. when I
4: see these gated neighborhoods. So, moving into one, I was like, "Huh." But I had to come to the realization, like Maverick does in the book, just because I live don't live there doesn't mean I don't care about what happens there. So, mm. I'm making investments into that community. I'm I want to do things to continue to improve that community even if I don't live there. I had to move for safety sakes, you know, because when all dope boys start saying, oh, she got money, you need to leave.
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> but,
4: <laughs> but I still care about what happens there and I'm still investing into that community. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you live there or not, you just need to care about it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about moving on up, like I'm sure not just your location, but maybe everything about your life changed since the crazy amazing success of the hate you give like how different is your life i guess from like church secretary to now
4: oh it's totally different before the book came out um i'd only ever traveled to alabama and memphis and those two don't count you know (laughs) those are like that's like being an extended Mississippi, you know. <laughs> but um I before that I had never traveled and now I've been to several countries, you know. Mm. I, I'd never been on a plane before. And now mm. I'm like Diamond on Delta, you know, I'm flying okay. all the time. You know. <laughs> so that's that's changed. And 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 just being now a, a a recognizable person, you know. I was in Kroger the other week and somebody recognized me and I'm like dang, I just can't come out the house now and look any kind of way. Somebody's going to be like, Andy Thomas was in Kroger in her robe. What? You know, I can't do that. Yeah. So yeah. that that I, people recognize me now, but I'm thankful that, you know, with my family, I'm still the same. Everything's still the same. You know, um, yeah. my mom will still get on my case about my room looking a mess. Cause I bought a house and I put my mom in the house with me. And even though I paid a mortgage, she'll get on me about my room. And I'm looking at <laughs> her as I say it.
3: Um, <laughs> mom, you want to go to the mic? I have to give her a chance to, Offer some rebuttal.
4: Come no, on, mom. No. Come on. Put on the mic. And she's talking about looking at me. I'm looking at her too. Because my room is a mess right <laughs> yes. now. I love it.
3: Do you promise right now, Miss Thomas, to clean your room after this interview?
4: I will clean my room when <laughs> she I get home. Yes, she will. See, see, that's what I mean. I love it. Some things, some things haven't changed. I'm thankful yep. for that. I'm thankful that yeah. that's, that's the same. You know, even though I'm 31 years old, that's still uh, the same. If you're
3: 92, I'm still mom. Okay. Oh, come on. Come on, mom. All right, come
1: let's on. move the mic. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, I love this.
4: I love this. (laughs) So, yeah, some things are still the same, and I'm very thankful for that.
3: (laughs) Yes, yes. Angie Thomas, thank you so much for that chat. It was delightful. Also, thanks to your mom, who was delightful. All right, now author Candice Cardi-Williams. Candice wrote Queenie. It is a page-turner of a fiction debut that has been called The Black Bridget Jones Diary. The thing I loved about Queenie was how everything in that book was on the table. The characters here talked about all of the stuff. I will let Candice tell you more about that herself.
2: So Queenie is about a black British woman um, living in South London. She is 25 and we basically meet her when she's about to have what I can describe best as a quarter-life crisis. Um, So she is living with her partner, um, who is white, um, and when their relationship hits a bit of a well, a big rock, um, things start to unravel for her. uh, Things in the past that she's been pushing down come out, and she basically goes on a big messy spiral. But it's fun, um, (laughs) and there are really fun uh, set of uh, supporting characters helping her through it. Um, And so she is, you know, and also you know, Queenie, she is she's meant to be frustrating and she's meant to be quite irritating because she is in this period of her life where she's like, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm really scared. And so I'm just reaching out and pulling on to everything and anyone that I can. um, So I don't fall.
3: Yeah. When you say that Queenie is meant to be frustrating and irritating, Mm. how do you, like, is there ever a fear that you're giving readers too much? Because you Because you're saying, all right, Queenie's going to be unashamedly black and Mm -hmm. also frustrating and also irritating. I could see some publishing houses saying, I don't know, Candice might be too much. (laughs) Did you get any pushback like that?
2: Uh, No, I didn't actually, which is really nice. Uh, (laughs) um, But I think it's also because, you know, I really did set out to have a character who was not she was black and she did not have to be strong she did not have to be sassy she did not have to click her fingers she was somebody who was going through stuff and actually I think there is a lot about women being likeable that I kind of push against myself Mm. Mm. uh because i think that women just in our everyday lives we have to be polite we have to be likable, we have to be nice um uh, and i think that we can be many things um but we also don't have to adhere to social norms just to get through the day i think if you're feeling something you're feeling it and you have to go through what you're going through i'm a nice person but there are (laughs) you know i but i also have boundaries and i don't take a lot of rubbish
3: yeah queenie Queenie has very few boundaries (laughs) yeah
2: very few boundaries um but yeah, so no pushback from that, actually. My editors were really kind of like, yeah, this girl is kind of going through her thing and she's kind of got to be this person who is going to kind of split the crowd.
3: Yeah. Uh, you. This book has been called, for a, few, for a while now, The Black Bridget Jones Diary, which is mm. actually a descriptor that you came up with yourself from what I was reading.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, tell me why you did it and tell me if that comparison and, and that labeling ever tires you.
2: So it's interesting. A lot of uh, people have been like, you're doing the book a huge disservice by saying that. Um, (laughs) But I think, just because, you know, obviously like shout out to Bridget Jones' Desire by Helen Fielding, an amazing book, an amazing film. Yeah. Um, But in terms of the comparison, that was me being like, I know that publishers are going to be quite scared of this because Mm. we don't have any really in the commercial space at the moment, mainstream books by Mm. black women. And I mean, black on both sides. So my both of my mm-hmm. parents are black. I do not have fair skin, I do not have loose curls, I do not have freckles. I am black on both sides. And um yeah. and by saying, look, this is like, you know, hopefully gonna be commercial success yeah. that was the Bridget Jones effect. That was my like stealth That was like my sneaking into a... But yeah, so I mean, it worked out well. I got it through the door. (laughs) And so it's it's all going well. It's all going well.
3: Does that stealthifying, though, ever get tiring? Because black people have to do it all all the time. Like, how do I present myself in a way that they get, that doesn't Mm. offend them, that doesn't make them stop and scratch their head? And like you want to do it so your work and you have the greatest reach but also some days are you just like i mean i find myself being just like i don't want to to do it today
2: yeah for sure i mean there's a lot of code switching is the main thing so obviously speaking differently and i'm speaking like this because i'm doing a podcast so i need to be proper (laughs) wait no no no. stop 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 give me some improper candies for
3: just a little bit we can go there we're no, the slightly drunk be- npr podcast we're like a little <laughs> bit buzzed that's our vibe so feel free okay, to let well, i it could all drop it i out. could
2: drop it a bit okay um <laughs> so no, no no so basically it's just um so there is code switching which is and also just like in terms of dress so basically i will always wear i will mainly wear a tracksuit because i just want to be comfortable yeah um but i have to when you like when you do these things you have to like be acceptable just like appearance wise and voice wise you have to make sure you say the right things mm. and so like when you're doing press that's like a triple thing because you're like okay so i've also got to not swear and i have got to like not give things away and i've got to think about who my audience are going to be mm-hmm. and so yeah so it's a really like I've, you know it is a lot of work a lot of the time but i talk to like my friends who like i speak to my actor friends basically who like mm have been doing this and kind of shaping how, have helped me to shape how I can see myself and understanding like, you know, your identity and what that can mean. But What's their um, biggest
3: tip on all of that?
2: uh, It is that being all things for people isn't sustainable. And that's really helpful because I go to, so here, obviously I do lots and lots of events. And even if I'm like exhausted, I'll be like, all right, do it. Because there's going to be like three or four black girls in the crowd who are going to be grateful that you've gone there. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so it's a lot. So it's all been a good time, but it's also a lot of work and a lot of like policing yourself in ways just so you know. Also, my nan is watching all this stuff (laughs) and you have to have to like, I can't. Keep me slipping. (laughs) Exactly. She's so strict. So really? yeah, Exactly. yeah. The book in itself, like I was, I gave her a copy, and I was like, "But you can't read it. But you can't have it in the house." <laughs> Did she and read it? She was it? like, "No, she hasn't," because she knows that she was like, "I don't want to be. I don't wow. want any reason to dis- to be disappointed." So, wow, yeah.
3: <laughs> Do you think she will? You allow her at some point to read it, and will she ever read it?
2: I don't know. I think she might, you know, she might do a sneak read and never talk to me about it, and wow. that's fine. Okay. But my my mum like is kind of my mum doesn't read. She's dyslexic, so she's uh-huh. like, it's quite hard. So it's like it's like effort for her to read. So she's like, oh, can you know, I'm trying, and you know, I've liked what I've read, and she's on page like seven or something. <laughs> get her that, um, audiobook. Like, <laughs> get <her> that audiobook. Get that audiobook. Oh my god, that's such a good point. She, knows, <laughs> oh, she th- thanks. Um, I can get. Her, I, can, I reckon I get her an Audible credit. Yeah. Um, and my sister is twenty and we do not talk about anything to do with men, really. And so mm. I'm a bit like, read it, but we won't talk about it. Huh. And she's like, all right, understood. I mean, she's 20, but I see her as like, you know, a child. Oh, you so. always will. She's a younger sister. Yeah, exactly.
3: So as you deal with family reading or possibly reading this book, I'm sure one question they'll be asking you and probably a question a lot of folks are asking you is, how much of Queenie is you?
2: Basically, I have I have a really vivid imagination in that. If I say I like meet someone at the bus stop, I can then sit if I'm bored and like reimagine our whole lives um, <laughs> you together. And me both. Up until death.
3: Yeah, seriously. In my mind, I'm married five (laughs) times a day. (laughs)
2: Exactly. And so it really comes from that. So it's kind of like, okay, so a few experiences I had, a few dates I went on, a few people that I know. But also, you know, it is a work of fiction and there's nothing in that that I could be like, yeah, this this is part of my life. And Queenie is like very far from me. I'm really Mm. considered, I'm really careful. Um, My heart is like very guarded, you know, like I'm just, we're very different people and she's a kind of, I guess maybe she's she was me if I let myself be vulnerable and I let myself go. Mm. Um, so she's yeah, she's a she's a different version, but I don't really see my I don't really see myself in her, and I too find her frustrating because <laughs> someone actually described her the other day as like the frustrating friend that you love loads, oh, um, yeah. and they, they will always ask for your advice and you'll give it to them even though you and know they you're not go- they it. know they're not going to take it. Um, you were
3: saying in one interview that I was reading up on that.
2: That she's perhaps more fun, but you're more stable. (laughs) I'm not that much more stable, but my instability does not affect my actions. (laughs) 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 All
3: right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, author Candice Cardi Williams tells me about her own personal relationships. We'll be right back.
5: Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's new series, Messiah. What would it take to make you believe in something crazy? When a man starts performing miracles and saying he's the Messiah, one CIA agent is determined to find the truth, no matter how crazy it may be. Messiah streaming now, only on Netflix. Support also comes from Doctors Without Borders. Doctors Without Borders teams confront hard facts in conflict and crisis zones. When others look away, they step in to act. In emergencies and their aftermath, they provide essential healthcare, run hospitals and clinics, perform surgery, battle epidemics, carry out vaccination campaigns, and more. Information on their efforts and campaigns in over 70 countries can be found at doctorswithoutborders.org.
3: Hey y'all, before we get back to the show, I want to remind you one more time of how you can keep this show coming to you every week by supporting the work of your local NPR member station. To do that, go to donate.npr.org slash Sam or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. Okay, thank you. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Usually what we do on weekends like these is a weekly wrap of the news of the week. But because it's a holiday weekend, I thought we'd mix it up, try something different. I'm sharing with you now conversations with two of my favorite authors of this past year. You're hearing now conversations with one of my favorite authors of the year, Candice Cardi-Williams. Candice wrote Queenie, this page-turner of a fiction debut. In the book, Candice writes really bluntly about race and the life of the main character in her book. But Candice also gets real, with me, about interracial relationships in her own life. One of the things I wondered if there was commonality in was the complicated... Uh, the complications of Queenie dating white men is that something Mm. that you've experienced too?
2: Yeah for sure Um, I don't date white men anymore haven't for a while Um, and actually my my, sorry guys honestly there aren't going to be many people complaining um, no, my <laughs> older brother runs my website he's like 38 mm-hmm. and he's had to send me like in a really exasperated way all of the weird emails that I get from white men who are what? like hi read your interview don't agree with what you're saying here's why I think you could date me here is Aww. my value sexual and otherwise and it's just like I'm always like Claude I'm so sorry you do not have to send me these but he's like no no it's fine it's funny but um how do you feel
3: when you get those do you because I mean, on the one hand you can say like well I appreciate these men for trying but on the other hand back back
2: I just love I think, it's, I think also because it's coming through my brother I can't see him <laughs> as anything but like jokes <laughs> because wow. I can't be like okay great I'll email him but I also wouldn't anyway but I was talking about it the other day I mean if, seriously I talk about this I mean having written a novel people want to talk about these things all the time now but in terms of um, interracial dating I, I have done it um, and and There are some right. I mean, (laughs) I mean, there are some nice instances, but also, you know, like I found it to be a lot of work, a lot of the time, and I think that a relationship is work all the time, but it shouldn't be in that way. And I don't. I just think it's tiresome having to explain why things impact you and affect you all the time and why certain words aren't nice and you just kind of like why am i doing it and then like you know you 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 start like dating black people and you're like yeah. i don't have to do this work you know yeah yeah but yeah i mean i know i know and love many interracial couples not in a threesome way just in a they're my friends way (laughs) Um, but you know and I really love and respect them but I just think for me the work Mm -hmm. I'm doing also I'm a super 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 sensitive person um, and I get really quickly exhausted by having to do that work and I'm just kind of you know it feels like it's you know
3: not to like cape for the straight white men out there they're fine but like is there a reality in which a white guy who really gets it and doesn't need the hand holding would he have a chance with you?
2: I'm yet to meet him. If I'm there, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I will. Um, but I don't know. I don't. You know what? I don't. I don't think so. Okay. And I think. I mean, it's kind of. I don't know. I guess maybe I've let past experiences just de- define the future. But. Um, I don't think so. It would have to. It would have to depend.
3: Was there a particular moment or time or bad dating experience in which you said, "That's it, no more of them"? Or was it a gradual realization? Or
2: it was a gradual thing, and then it was talking to my black female friends and us basically comparing and contrasting the ways that white guys saw us and spoke to us. And I was ma- I made certain to talk to black girls my black female friends of all body types so i'm a curvy girl um i spoke to one of my friends who is like petite one who's like athletic build one Mm -hmm. who's like sim thick and the thing we had in common was the way that guys approached us on dating sites especially was so about our bodies and our skin Mm. and what we could do for them sexually and basically it was just kind of a discussion we we were just like what where is the hope especially in Britain I mean I'm sure it, um, it, you know every place is different um, and I think you know app culture is so huge here mm-hmm. um, and there's I was talking to someone about mixers that uh, th- a thing and she said she went to New York and there were these mixers and we were <laughs> just like haha that could never happen here because everyone is super awkward and yeah. like the idea that you would be like out and being like hi yes I'm single or I'd like to mix with someone else single we it's like Brits are just like we're no that's terrifying mortifying. let's just look at our phones
3: yeah How much of what Queenie is going through about being black, about being a woman, and how much of it is about just going through your early to mid-20s and how that is just always for everyone a hot mess?
2: Isn't it such a mad time? I'm turning 30 this year and I'm like, thank you. I'm like, Get it away. I just, I won't get me away from my 20s. I'm not interested anymore. Yeah. Um. I really just, I just want to be out of them. I had a friend, one of my best friends was turned 30 and she was crying all week and I was like, I don't know what you're crying for. Um. <laughs> but I think, do you know what? I think it's that thing when you feel like you're meant to be an adult and also, I think it's really vital to note that you leave all of these institutions that you've been in since you were a child mm-hmm. um, where you have your structures. So obviously, oh, yeah. like, you know, you over here, they tell you what to do. They tell you how to, to be they tell you what your goals are, your ambitions are, your grade point average. I understand you guys have your GPO, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you have all of those things, and then suddenly it's time to get a job, and you're like, Sorry, hmm, mm-hmm. because <laughs> you don't. Where do I, who gives me the Where's job? Where's my guidance counselor? I, exactly, and actually, yeah, you hit the world running in a way but actually you don't run at all you end up stopping and being like oh wait oh, oh what you know and so I think there's this really it's this really weird space that feels like limbo but you actually have no idea where you're going yes. and so I think early 20s are really tough time because you are definitely not yet an adult and I'm still learning things now about myself about how the world works about my feelings around things about how to navigate things oh, yeah. I was not equipped for anything when I was yes. in my early 20s but yes. I, I expected to be Mm-hmm. Um and I think that expectation is what really knocks you on your uh, yeah. you know, off your feet. Oh yeah.
3: I am 34 now, going on 35. Very and nice. I just 6 months ago began to feel like a grown ass man.
2: Yeah. Like there's I something think, that,
3: yeah. y- you just like and on top of the complications of being a child in your 20s but like with a beard or like fully developed mm-hmm. <laughs> which is weird, you like also have that wonderful early to mid 20s something's feeling of somehow knowing everything and knowing Mm. that everyone else before has done it wrong and if you could just do it your way and show them they'd all get it and I think the moment when I began to just settle down and like ease into the ride was was when I said maybe I'm not better or smarter than everyone else and maybe Mm -hmm. a lot of folks have gone through the same thing before and maybe the difference that I make in the world will be a slight move to the left or right but I might not reinvent the wheel and maybe that's okay. It's about know, being
2: realistic, right? It's yeah. about being like, I can only do what I can do. Yeah. Um, and also understanding that actually there are... It's really weird because I think we do believe a lot of stuff that we think just as people because all we have is our thoughts, right? Like at yeah. like a, a very base level. Um, and I think when you hear them enough, you're kind of like, oh no, no, that's right. I'm true. I can do all of that stuff, but that's not real. And I think there always needs to be space for other considerations. But I do think that as we get older, we do make space for that because we've got to make mistakes in order to get there i want to talk
3: a little bit about how you got to be a best-selling author because just before this book was done and actually while you were writing the book you were also doing a day job as like a marketing executive
2: which i still do now look at you Mm, i'm leaving in one week
3: (laughs) in a week (laughs) at the end of this
2: week yeah i'm leaving at the end of this week it's gonna be new life
3: how do you feel about that
2: I feel good about it. I feel good because it means I can now concentrate on writing full time. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when I started out writing, I hadn't written at all. And I was like, I can understand, I can see that there's a, this gap in the market where, you know, someone like me would love to read a book about herself. So why don't you just write it? Mm-hmm. And so I went away for a week and I uh, just like, started banging it out. And um, at the end of the first week, I'd written 40,000 words. And then. Wait, stop.
3: The, tell everyone your secret,
2: <laughs> please. Basically, I I'm just—it's really bad. I just basically just—I write at night time exclusively, huh. and so I'm just nocturnal anyway. Huh. Um, and so I settle down to write at about wow. midnight, and then I look up, and it's seven a.m. Huh. And so yeah, I just write and write, and I write really quickly. I write so quickly that sometimes. I trip over the first sentence and then just write the second and then go back and finish the one that I was writing first because my brain Ah. just moves super quick time. You must be Um, an editor's
3: dream. You're like, oh, you want Do that? Copy? I, I really,
2: got it. Do you know what? They are so lucky to have me. And I really <laughs> hope they listen to this. Because genuinely, they'll be like, Hi, here are your edits, like hear from you like in a few months. And and in three weeks, I'll be like, Hi guys, just let me know what you think. Like, you know, I'm <laughs> just I've what you said <laughs> and I've added a few flourishes. Wow. Um, but I just really like it. And once I get into the world, I can see it all and I'm very firmly in there. And because I can sit for hour-long periods and I can just write, I think that's really, really helped me.
3: Thanks again to both Candice Cardi williams and Angie Thomas for those conversations. And thank you, dear listener. There is so much stuff to listen to and read and watch and spend your time on. So every time anyone listens to this little show, I am honored and extremely profoundly grateful. Thank you. All All right. With that, I wish you all a wonderful holiday weekend, a blessed, joyous new year full of all the good things you ever wanted. And I'm so happy to be talking with y'all very soon in 2020. Okay, back on your radio next weekend. Till then, talk soon.